forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. So, Doc, this is the first episode of the Inner Partner Podcast, and we're going to begin at the beginning because your whole career has been helping people to improve the brain-body connection so they can improve their performance, perform at their potential, and all of that begins with the brain, right? Yeah, it's so great to start this journey with you, Greg. Uh, We've been together for a while here, and it's nice to do these podcasts. And for our listeners out there, really looking forward to developing a relationship, not just throwing knowledge at you, but coming together as a team that we're all working together to get ourselves stronger and optimize who we are. And like you said, it starts with the brain. That's where we need to start this whole journey. You know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how we as people, we talk a lot about the mind-body connection. And our mind, if you think of our mind as the conscious self, you know, our ability to think and feel and choose, but where that is centered is in the brain. You know, so we have this consciousness, but it's living in our brain. And there's, isn't there, there's a kind of a conscious and an unconscious aspect of the brain. Yeah. I mean, you've got the basic neuroanatomy of it and how it works, which uh, the further we study the brain, the more we find out what we don't know. And anybody that comes straight at you and says they know this whole thing and get, has it figured out, uh, I'd run as far as you can because uh, it just gets more and more complex. Even the whole idea of how memory happens, it, we used to think it was kind of storage centers, but it, it's not even that the more we study it. So you've got the conscious and you've got the unconscious. While we don't have an exact number on it, based on all the things that are going on unconsciously, you've really your consciousness is only about five to ten percent at most. And there's so many other variables happening unconsciously that ultimately impact your conscious, impact your thoughts, impact your what your body's doing. And that's where we're going to put a lot of focus as we study this uh, three and a half pound organ. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, there's almost a kind of a popular misconception. So my whole life, I've heard people say, hey, you only use 10% of your brain or whatever. Uh, But what I hear you saying, and as I understand it, it's not so much that we're only using 10% of our brain, it's that we're only conscious of 10%. There's a lot going on sort of under the hood, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. We do, and we'll get into this later on in other podcasts, but how we actually train the brain, how we are able to leverage the brain's greatest ability, which is learning, and actually change the electrical current in the brain. And when we go through that process to to teach that, which involves a lot of computer brain interface, one of the most difficult things that I run up to is people saying when when we have the computer giving them feedback, well, what do I do? What do I do? And it's very difficult to explain to them What you're thinking is very little compared to the rest of how your nervous system is functioning, and that is the part that we need to work with first. And I found over the years the the people who move the fastest through strengthening their brain and optimizing are the ones who aren't bogged down by what is it that I have to do. Like a five-year-old autistic child will advance far faster than the CEO of a 
billion dollar corporation that's trying to do steps one, step two, step three. It's, you got to work on the unconscious side first. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, there's so much underneath the, you know, if you think of a car that's got all these complex systems and you only have sort of the user interface, you know, you've got the steering wheel and a couple of buttons and the pedals or whatever, but there's so much going on beneath it. But you can almost try to over control that, oversteer it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think of this concept when, when I say the, the number 98.6, right? It's not just a radio station, it's actually your body temperature. And just stop for a second and think about this. This is crazy. It's just, a, it, it blows my mind. My brain is keeping me at 98.6 24-7 from the time I'm born till the time I die. My brain is regulating. And it's not just saying, hey, Tim, someplace in the 90s would be a good idea, right. you know, or just stay within six, seven degrees. I mean, I just flew up here from Jacksonville and we're in Michigan and I looked at the thermostat. It's 17 degrees out right. and it was 71 yesterday in Jacksonville. But my brain figured that out and it's keeping me at 98.6 no matter where I am. That is just mind-boggling. Mind that's, one, that's just one thing. And that's why, like you say, the precision of that, because if, you know, when we give a kid a, a thermometer to see if he's sick, we're like, man, he's up 98.8, <laughs> right? We're yeah. like, man, that's really off. It's like, you know, two, like two-tenths of a percent. <laughs> and so, like you say, the precision of keeping this within, you know, one-tenth of one percent, two-tenths of one percent, and your brain is thermoregulating the rest of your body. We don't think of that. We don't think of our brain doing that. No. But our brain is thermoregulating the rest of our body. You know, another analogy that you and I have talked about is you take a, your computer, you know, your iPad, your, your desktop, your, heck, your, your phone, right? Yeah. And you look at that and you say, well, underneath the parts that you can push or see, there's so much code and uh, hardware and software that's sort of operating that system so that you can play your video game or you can surf Facebook or whatever. Yeah. In order for that to happen, that's where this whole thing of we only use five or 10%, right? We're conscious of five or 10% of what's going on and the rest of it is behind the scenes. But that, that brings up your whole career and everything that you do with yeah. Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience and everything that you've done you know, around the world with everything from professional athletes down to ordinary people has all been trying to help better synchronize and coordinate and harness what's going on in that 90% we can't see, right? Yeah. And I would say, just to share a little bit of my journey, yeah. that, that, you know, that did, I just didn't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to you know, do the brain right yeah. out of the chute. You know, I, I went to graduate school, got some different master's degrees, and then got a doctoral degree. And I, I came out as a neuropsychologist working in a, in a children's hospital had a great opportunity to become the division chief there of this pretty large children's hospital. And, you know, I thought I was going to do this the rest of my life. You know, I'd been taught neuropsych. I've been taught how to make diagnoses, how to put people into the boxes. You know, you have your DSM and, and what you're taught is like as quick as you can with your testing and your interview, put them in a box. Right. And, uh, you know, let's put six and a half million in the ADHD box and let's put, you know, 20 million in the anxiety box, whatever that is, we're like putting them in the boxes. And, you know, I did that for a good seven, eight years, right? You know, and as I was doing that, I was starting to run into some more technology where we were actually not just looking at behaviors, but actually looking at the brain. I want to say that again, okay? Not just looking at behaviors, but looking at the brain, because that's where most of our care of 
different behaviors and emotions really slips up is we just fill out a checklist and then we move on and nobody's looked at the brain. And I started looking at the brain and in about a 10-year span, studied over 50,000 brains. And guess what I found? Everyone is different. Everybody listening to this podcast right now, your brain is unique. It's different. There will never be anybody from the beginning of time until the end of time that will have the exact same brain. And I had been down this road of take them all and put them in this box and then have them get on this medicine to address that issue. And then I'd have the parents come back and they'd say, that didn't really work for him. You know, I put him on this medicine and he has tics or he can't sleep at night or um, he's anxious or now he's more depressed. Well, then it'd be put him on more medicine. And the more I studied this and the more we were working at the children's hospital, some of these kids would end up on the ICU because they were getting overdosed on these meds. And that was kind of the behind the curtain look at this. And I started to realize the thing we're neglecting the most in all this is the brain. And so that really pushed me. I would say until maybe eight or nine years into my career, like, man, I got to step back and I got to start measuring the brain and study the brain first. And as I did, one, I realized how much I didn't know. And two, I started to see how we could help people change their lives in ways that went way beyond a pill bottle, that literally the brain is more powerful than that stuff. And that's where our discussion has to start is with the brain. Right. So our understanding of the brain has advanced so much in recent decades in the last 50, 60, 70 years because we have the technology. So if you go back 500 years ago when Leonardo da Vinci was dissecting people in the Renaissance, right? There are parts of the body that you can study. You can, you can look at the muscles, you can look at the skeleton, you know, you can dissect somebody, look at their internal organs, but you come to the brain and what you see are these folds and they did dissections. So you can see all those medieval or Renaissance or early kinds of things. You can go back to Gray's anatomy from the 1800s and you can see these folds, but what they couldn't see was what was going inside of it because it's all electrical activity and they didn't have the capacity to measure that. So, and they didn't have the kinds of things, the imaging technology that we do real time to measure that. So now what we have is an understanding of what's going on in this, as you say, three and a half pound sort of mysterious organ. Yeah. And I think for me, I mean, there's all, I can't wait for what's going to come around the corner as far as imaging and studying the brain. What I lean into a lot is EEG, looking at electrical activity. And I really see the brain as a, a, an electrical device, an electrical, it's the most complex, mysterious, wonderful thing that's ever been created. But it needs electricity. It runs off of electricity. And inside there, you have all these neurons. You know, you have 100 billion neurons that have these branch-like structures that create these synapses where they don't really touch each other, but they send chemical signals. And the best calculation is that there's over a quadrillion neuronal connections. That's like more than there are stars in the universe in a three and a half pound organ. So let's talk about the anatomy a little bit for people. Because it's, you know, we can't look at our own brain, right? And we don't people look at other people's brains, really. So the anatomy, as you say, so what exactly is the brain composed of? Specialized tissue, right? Mm -hmm. And that specialized tissue is full of these, as you called them, you called them neurons, which are a specialized cell. It's a conductive cell, right? Mm -hmm. So it conducts electricity. 
And as you say, the best statistics are about 100 billion neurons in our brain, which is equivalent to the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, right? It's crazy. The total length of the capillaries in the human brain is somewhere around 400 miles. (laughs) You and I were talking about this the other day. I actually checked. And uh, it's about 400 miles of capillaries in our brain. And they said that a lot of neuroscientists are starting to believe that every neuron has a capillary that serves Mm, that neuron. So these are infinitely small vessels that bring oxygen, red blood cells, to each of those neuronic cells. So the complexity of this neuron structure of these electrical things, and they're all fed by oxygen, is oxygen what powers it. So then you look at it as the primary site where oxygen and nutrients are, are, I'm getting all this from Harvard Medical Journal, are exchanged. Then what you have is each of those neurons has more than 10,000 synapses. So the synapses, the connection. So if we were to take a whiteboard and we were to put it, and then we were to do like dotted lines or whatever, like an organizational chart. So each of those neurons has 10 different, organizational line, 10,000 different organizational lines. So hundred billion times 10,000. And what happens is electric, electrical signals can pass through those pathways as neuron, uh, right? Neural pathways, yeah. different sequences. So if you think about this vast network of, a, you know, 250 quadrillion, gazillion, bazillion, <laughs> whatever, different pathways, and the signals can choose all these different routes and paths through them. It's essentially infinitely complex. Yes. And I think with that complexity, I know along the way, you and I are going to um, probably use different things to try to give examples. Like we're going to talk about computers and we're going right. to talk about engines and we're going to talk. And, you know, that's just the simplicity to which our mind can even grasp this. But we do want to let everybody out there know that it's not as simple as a computer. You can't build this thing. And, uh, you know, computers have more sequential or serial processing. Yes, there are some parallel kind of things that happen, but the brain is super unique in that way, is there's parallel processes that are happening constantly in all different of these neurons. And it's not as simple as one neurotransmitter. You know, it's not serotonin. It's not dopamine. You know, it's, it, those are important. They're all important. but there's different things that have to interact in different receptor sites in the brain that allow dopamine and these things to and do stuff. And different sequences, right? Yes, so, exactly. And, and quantities. So I know there's a lot out there on the internet right now. And I think one of the things is the internet, like we're always looking to simplify things, yes. but there's a sort of um, a, a reductionism that comes into this because we're all looking for that, that one key thing that's the, you know, the, the magic um, thing to understand everything else. And so you can go on the internet and, two seconds and find uh, people will talk about dopamine or talk about serotonin or talk about this or talk about that. And this is the one key to understand everything. But as you say, your body, your brain is, and your body is releasing all of these different things at different times and in different locations and in different quantities and in different sequences in response to different stimuli or stresses. So it's really, it can't be reduced to any one thing. No. And it's not just one pill or one combination of supplements. These are all helpful things, but you really need to step back and, and really look at what's, what is the brain doing and it's working off of this electrical current. And you need to be looking at that electrical current. 
for for cues. And I think before even talking about the electrical current, we have to figure out where in the heck does this electricity come from, right? Well, well, let's talk about electricity for a second, because here's some more facts about the brain yeah. that I think most of us are, you know, we never think about this, right? So I was explaining this to a friend the other day, because I knew we were going to record this, and I was having coffee with a friend, and we were just talking about this, and, and threw this fact out. So your brain is 2% of your body weight, but it consumes 20% of your energy. Mm. So- so my friend said, well, I have like a resting metabolic rate. Like my body consumes 1,200 calories a day, whether I, if I'm just laying on the couch. Yeah. Right? They go, right. Of that, 250 to 300 of those calories, or nearly a quarter of the energy it takes to operate your body is just to operate your brain. Because Amazing. it consumes, because it has electricity or anything. So think about that. That's generating electricity. And the way it generates electricity is, is your body consumes, uh, you know, fuel and oxygen generates electrical signals and your brain. So if you look at, say, I know we just said we got to be careful about analogies, but if we look at a computer, the CPU in your computer, mm-hmm. right, uh, consumes an enormous amount of energy. And you know, your electrical bill, if you have a lot of computers <laughs> plugged in, will show that, right? Yeah. And as a consequence of that, so it also generates heat. Right, right. So anytime yeah. that you're consuming energy and running energy, electricity through something, one of the byproducts of that is heat. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. If you think about how much heat your brain is giving off and sort of the, the anatomy in terms of the way that we're designed, you know, God designed our brains, they're in our skull close to the surface so that we can sh- it can shed heat. Right. You know, if it was in the middle of your body, it, it would over, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to maintain the 98.6. So, and that's why we lose heat through the entire head, why we have to wear a hat in the winter. Yeah. Or when it gets really hot out, we get heat stroke and our brain gets scrambled because it gets overheated. Because it's generating a lot of electricity and a lot of heat, right? Yeah. I mean, the, it, the efficiency of how it's generating the energy, and yes, you have the thermoregulation, the heat. It's just, we couldn't build anything that could do this working at the consumption rate that it's doing. So you have this three and a half pound organ using 20% of your energy. So next time you sit down to eat, okay, I'd like, you know, just pause for a second and realize that 20% of what's on that plate is going to this organ, this three and a half pound organ. And while it can make that energy off of all types of food, there is an important component to what types of food we're making electricity from, just like what types of um, fuels are used to make electricity in the real world, right? Uh, there's some, some things that are clean, there's some things that are dirty, and we'll get into that as far as power. But when we look at that plate, thinking how clean and efficient is this energy going to be that I'm going to create from it? Well, also 20% of your oxygen. So that's yes. another fact we've got here. So think about this. And it was occurring to me the other day why I can't think clearly when I'm exercising, yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm out for a run or something like that. And, you know, you're starting to breathe heavy and you go, man, I, you know, I remember back when I was training when I was much younger and could still run a lot and I was training for a marathon. And one of the things I tried to do was to do like math, like do simple. Somebody taught me that try to maintain doing simple math problems. Mm-hmm. So you're just trying to do your times tables or something as you're running. And it gets increasingly hard to think because your brain is consuming 20% of your oxygen. 
it requires 20 to 30% yes. oxygen. So now if your muscles are consuming that oxygen, you have less oxygen going to the brain to fuel its thinking and you mm-hmm. get this competition. So you think about how that affects your health in so many different ways and how we operate that consumption of oxygen, electricity, calories. And we don't think about it. I mean, our head's just, it's just our head. It's just there. Right. But this is the organ that consumes more than anything else in our body, right? Absolutely. And so when we think about, well, where does it come from? What do, what do we need for it to function? Um, we're inundated with new supplements, new neurotransmitters, ways to affect those. And those are all super important, very important. And our diet is very, very important. But when we look at it, somewhere around 80 to 90% of the energy that we're going to make that's going to fuel the body and that the brain, the energy hog is going to take a lot of comes from breathing, breathing, right? And just do you know, a search of all the different things out there that you're just getting flooded with and how many are just saying, hey, what about stopping for three times a day and breathing for three minutes, nice and slow, diaphragmatically and, and settling the autonomic nervous system down? But it's kind of a lost, lost art. I know people talk about it. We're going to get more into it later in some of the way that we can dynamically address this. But 80 to 90% of my energy, but where am I putting my focus as far as what I'm taking in? Food is important. Water is important. Um, I'd like people to think about for a second, what, how long can you go without something? You know, We can go without food for a while, days, weeks maybe. We can go without water for a little bit, okay? We need the hydration. There's a lot of the brain that's made of hydration and think about electrical current. How does electrical current work? It works good with the hydration. You know, you don't want to step in a puddle when there's electrical wire in it. Why? Because that transmits electricity. But on the positive side, we need the hydration to transmit electricity. You know, so you can't go with water very long. Something that we kind of miss a lot is how important sleep is. And we're going to spend multiple podcasts on sleep. But think about this, of the different things that will kill you on the planet. If I kept you from sleeping for 13 to 14 days, you would die. 13 to 14 days. Okay, we just went through a pandemic. 13 to 14 days is a fast time for something to kill you. In seven days without sleep, you would be psychotic. You wouldn't even know who you are, right? So there's so much of our energy that relies on our sleep patterns. But isn't that interesting how much, and I know, I know we're going to get into this in future episodes yeah. um, because it's a, a big part of your work is understanding how much of our lifestyles, especially today, are self-destructive. Yes. I mean, if you wanted to make a self-destruct device for our <laughs> brain, it would be a lot of the lifestyle things that we do. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, let's think about what, what we're doing at night. You brought this up the other day. I mean, I thought this was like, as you were dis- discussing, I'm like, could you think of a worse thing to do to somebody? Is our circadian rhythms and our sleep cycles work off of blue light? We don't want blue at night, but we do want blue in the morning. We'll talk about how we get more blue besides just the sun uh, in later podcasts. But the Expose yourself to blue light in the, at the night, in the evening, and that would be like the worst thing you could do to your circadian rhythm because you're going to, in some cases, maybe decrease your melatonin production up to 30%, depending on how much. Get your nervous system amped up by binging Netflix episodes of Peaky Blinders or something like that, <laughs> right? right? Right before you're going to bed. And um, 
also take this environment that you're supposed to be going into, we'll learn about this, but a parasympathetic recovery state and make it an anxious state. So make your bedroom this anxious place, right? So you just go through the list. Yeah, of what, and then before you go to bed, lay in bed and uh, with your iPad or whatever, yeah. or your phone and surf Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and get am- amped up about whatever for 30 minutes before you try to fall asleep. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's the blue light into your face. It's the, right? And it seems to me that there was an earlier time, if you wound the clock back mm-hmm. however long, um, several generations, there were sort of built-in speed limits to human life. You know, we didn't have all of these technological devices. We didn't have the ability to control the daylight cycle that we do now. We didn't have, didn't have you know, phones and iPads and all of the things and video games, you're not playing, you know, Xbox yeah. until whatever. And 10,000 things that we do that in a sense, you know, you sort of woke up when the sun came up and you more or less out of wound down when its sun went down. Mm-hmm. And there were these natural rhythms to how your brain was maintained. And I can't help but thinking when you see those things that do float around on the internet where they'll show you here was a, the, the eighth grade test you know in 1920 what eighth graders had to know and you right. know college students grad students today couldn't pass it right and so while people may have had less technology i, I can't help but wondering if their brains were stronger 100 or 200 or 500 years ago yeah i mean we know that attention span attention span has dramatically decreased in the last 15 years that's been measured you know that the brain can't attend like it was 15 20 years ago who knows what it was 100 years ago and um, while I'm definitely thankful for the light bulb and electricity, uh, there is something that's happened within the uh, onset of electricity in all of our homes that uh, there's an upside, but we also have to realize that there could also be a downside. And how, do we, how are we good stewards of this in a way that it doesn't hurt us? But I mean, there are estimates that over 100 years ago, the average person was sleeping around uh, just over nine hours a night, right? Um, we really need to be around eight hours, and I know people are going to come up with different things, and we'll talk about why that's important later. But the average person in the United States is sleeping less than seven hours a night. So we definitely have a massive shift, and we also have a massive increase in a lot of different chronic illnesses. I mean, just go through the list, and it all starts in the brain. As you have said, uh, it's upstream. You know, we look downstream at all these things, but who's looking upstream? Before you put something in your brain, who's looking upstream to see what is going on in the electrical current in your brain? Yeah, before we leave that point for a second, I remember this was like you and I were working together about 12 years ago. And I remember that I forwarded you an article, you know, by a neuroscientist that I'd seen online. um, And I said, what do you think of this? Does it seem credible? And the guy was making the point that the average... Um, citizen of ancient Athens or Rome had a higher average IQ Hmm. than a person today because they said there were so many things you had to figure out to survive in the ancient world. You know how to make things. You knew you had to know daylight and weather and you had to have skills. And what technology and tools have done for us is made it so that we don't have to figure a lot of stuff out. Then when you add in the lifestyle stuff and the brain, so those folks may not have had all, everything that we have in terms of technology, but their brains were probably pretty healthy. Yeah, 
Definitely. And it's finding that balance. Right. You know, uh, the, the innovations, the technology are amazing things. But when we binge or go excessive and we neglect the rhythms of our body and particularly the, the filter which all of this should go through is, is this making my brain stronger or is it making my brain weaker? What is it doing to me over time? And finding that balance. So let's talk about the variability between individuals, right? Mm -hmm. And you started off the podcast episode here talking about that no two brains are alike. Yeah. And so it's, we have to avoid the thing, as you were saying, when you were working in the children's hospital of saying, well, if you see a kid exhibiting behavior X, you prescribe, you know, drug Y mm -hmm. and that fixes it because there could be a thousand or 10,000 different reasons that are driving that X behavior and 10,000 different ways that it has to be approached. So it's an individual process. So talk about that variability between individuals. I mean, even like, um, and I'll kind of set you up here, but talk to a little bit about intelligence. We've been talking about IQ, but there's so many different ways that all these things are measured. Individual brains, individual, the health of people's brains, IQ, intelligence. How do you, how do you sort all that out? Yeah, I'm, I kind of see them as sort of like a con concentric circles, like a bullseye, right? And um, it matters kind of where you're coming in to assess. Okay, so somebody comes in and they haven't been sleeping well for a few days and they go into their doctor's office, their behavior is that they're not sleeping well, right? Uh, the doctor could just take that and need to move on to the next appointment and give them their Ambien and out the door. Then 15 minutes later, somebody else walks in and they're not sleeping well. So they're an outside circle behavior is not sleeping well. And so we're going to do a chemical change to the brain without really figuring that out. But I can guarantee you that those two people have different etiology of why they're not sleeping well. So if we start to work our way inward, okay, and start to look at uh, what's going on uh, cognitively for them, okay, in areas of external stress as well as internal stress or some type of physiological inflammation that's causing stress. Um, and if we're not looking at that, that's going to be different for everybody. So each layer that we go through, you're going to get exponential differences so that it creates kind of this this matrix of difference between people. And then we go even further into the physiological, what's going on physiological. And finally, we get to the neurological, which very few people are looking at. They're not looking at that electrical current and seeing what's going on. But the distance between the neurological and that behavior is vast. And we have to stop and look at it. A, a good example of just kind of, I experienced this early on in my career where you can make assumptions about the brain was in Michigan in the early 90s, uh, I worked with a team of people that developed one of the first uh, fetal alcohol syndrome clinics at, the children, at our children's hospital in Michigan. There was uh, one on the east side over in Lansing area, uh, U of M, but um, we didn't have anything on the west side of the state. So these kids were coming in from the upper peninsula all over the state uh, early on to see if they had fetal alcohol syndrome. There was some you know, suspicion that they might, their their family practice docs had sent them in or their pediatricians. And before they'd get there, we would get scans or images of their brain because one of the things in fetal alcohol syndrome is how that alcohol can affect the brain. And you would see some of these images that were just so awful, so sad to see of these brains, right? And we would say, oh my goodness, 
what's this child going to look like when they come into the clinic? I mean, they're going to be in a wheelchair, maybe a feeding tube. Who knows what's going on with this child? Because the brain just looked so bad, right? And then all of a sudden, the door would open up and Sally would be carrying her violin, okay? And she's wanting to learn her third language. And we'd all be looking at each other like, what? Like, we, we didn't know from that image how different and how unique the brain could be. So even in our, something might look a certain way, but until you really study it, you don't really know, right? Um, but, but right. But I mean, if you look at Sally coming in like that, you think if this is what, how Sally, if this is how good Sally is with the brain that she's got. Yes, right? exactly. If Sally can play violin concertos and learn Chinese and do all this stuff with that brain, if we could heal that brain, if we could strengthen that brain, if we could optimize that brain, how much better would she be? Absolutely. And I, this is really the principle for all of your work and the work of inner armor and exactly. neuroscience is to take where we are and improve from our current baseline. So if we can make our brains and our nervous systems and all of those things 5% stronger, 10% stronger. Now, if you take a professional athlete who's at the top of their sport, you know, a 2% improvement is the difference between, you know, winning a championship or not. But you take, you know, Joe Average walking in off the street to improve their performance and help them improve by 5, 10% is the huge difference. Absolutely. I would say, you know, the currently I've assessed or worked with 10 of the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Okay. Um, but it didn't start there. You know where it started was with people like Sally, yeah. where I was like, the brain is amazing. Yeah. Like this brain should not be able to do what it's doing. And I realized I'm putting like parameters around the brain and saying, right. well, this is all it can do. This is the ceiling that you have. Right. And I, then I started to realize, wait a minute, we don't know what the ceiling is. And I can tell everybody that's listening right now, whatever you think your ceiling is, is higher than that. Because the brain has huge, huge capacity. And it was those Sally's and those Johnny's and those different people, those brains I saw that were doing amazing things when we thought, there's no way that the brain could be able to do that. That really set me up to, to work with the average person, you know, the person out there with their kid who has an anxiety disorder or the Kirk Cousins of the world, you know, who's, you know, 13 and two right now, right, whatever they right. are. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. The biggest, biggest comeback in NFL history the yeah, other day, right? Last week. That was amazing. So this is, this is really what inner armor is all about is yeah. taking where us, wherever we are currently strengthening, forging that inner armor, strengthening in us so that we can be better than we are. It's like that old uh, $6 million man. Yes, we, can, know, make you make, we can make you better <laughs> than you are. And wherever you are, whether you're Sally or Johnny or Kirk Cousins or whatever, we can make you better than you are. Or you can make yourself better than you are by training and strengthening your system, that brain-body connection. So that's what this podcast is all about. And uh, I think this would be a good place to stop because yeah. we're going to come back and talk about a lot of this in future episodes. So thank you, Doc. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. Awesome. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential 
by going to forgeinnerarmor.com. <laughs>